I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. Today, we're joined by Paul Massaro. Paul is a senior policy advisor to the Helsinki Commission, where he focuses on corruption issues. Paul is also an adjunct fellow with the Hudson Institute's Kleptocracy Initiative. Paul, thanks for joining us. Yeah, so happy to be here. Thank you. Paul, why is corruption a national security threat? Can you connect the dots for us here? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is this is what I live for. This is this is the question that I always want to be answering because to me it is the national security threat and I think it's the one that's really grown up in the post-Cold War era. So it is the key tool that our adversaries are using these days to undermine democracy and the rule of law. And I think when we think about national security threats, it's often in sort of domains uh, at least in the military sense. And then, okay, we have the cyber domain now. And there's all sorts of ways that you could imagine sort of an invasion occurring or terrorism or something like that. But in fact, we have left our financial defenses wide open over the last 30 years. Money, dirty money flowing largely from the former communist bloc. And, and that includes China in this case. I guess China's still communist, but you have plenty of dirty money coming out of there. Dirty money coming out of the Gulf states, dirty money coming out of South America, wherever, into the West, into these democracies where it then takes root and it's able to get all sorts of elites and professionals entrenched in this system. And then it's able to generate political outcomes favorable to autocrats. And in that way, actually just right there, like the enemy is at home. It's right here. It is undermining democracy right now. And it's just a block over from you. You know, it's right there on K Street. It's right there, wherever the lobbyists are in London. I don't know what their uh, short form is. But in any case, I think it's one also, though, that we've really kind of missed the ball on. So it's something that I think has been a national security threat for a very long time. It's something that we kind of recognized way early on when we saw the capital flight happening from the Soviet Union, from the former Soviet Union. But then we kind of got off track a little bit. We moved on to another form of grand strategy, focusing on terrorism and that sort of thing. But then recently, it's really come back. I, I kind of, I always sort of tell the story that just a few years ago, because I've been doing this for nearly a decade now, and just a few years ago in 2015, when I'd walk into a room of national security experts and I'd say corruption is a national security risk, people would be like, well, what about nuclear weapons? What about terrorism? What about kinetic action? What about, what about all of these problems? Now I walk in and I talk about it, people are like, oh, yeah, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. So you mentioned uh, who some of the key players are here, former Soviet Union, the Gulf states, but what is the scale of the corruption? What are we talking about here? Massive. I, I mean, truly massive. In the, in the trillions and trillions, the UN estimates are like just insane. It's something like 10% of world GDP is offshore, <laughs> which is just like incredible to think about. I mean, a lot of it just sits there. A lot of it's just personal wealth that's been stashed or whatever, but a lot of it doesn't take a lot, right, to use it for massive influence operations. I mean, just think about how much it costs to retain a very powerful lawyer who brings his contact book or a very powerful lobbyist or so a very powerful former official, right? We're always talking about one of the biggest issues is that former officials of democracies go off and work for dictators. And we even like in Europe, we see this at the highest levels. The former French prime, prime minister, Francois Fillon, the only other living head of Germany, the, the former German chancellor, Gerhard Schroeder, is literally a Putin crony. Tony Blair, Matteo Renzi, you know, and then of course, former American cabinet officials. And I think you'd probably see former presidents doing it too, if it weren't so lucrative to be a former president. We sort of all recognize when you put it in those terms that this is 
horrendous. So why has it taken us so long to fix the problem? Yeah, I mean, it's an excellent question. And it's like, why haven't we been able to see it? And I think there are kind of two answers here. One of them is like the strategic, ideological answer. And I think that one is like the cynical answer. And I think both of them, both of them are important. So the first piece of this is that this was essentially our strategy over the last 30 years was this idea of, of engagement. We were going to engage with these former dictatorships and we were going to bring them into the fold. And we we're going to bring them into the financial action task force, we we're going to bring them into the world trade organization and so on and so forth. And as they came in, they would integrate and they take on democratic norms and they take on rule of law norms and so on and so forth. So it was great. It's the end of history mentality, I call it sometimes, right? Our norms are going to travel west to east, and they were going to become like us. Well, that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. That money came from the east to the west, and along with it brought norms of cynicism. It brought norms of informality. It brought forms of telephone policymaking as opposed to actual policy processes. It brought norms of unaccountability, which is what we have now. So now you've got people that are wear like, a million different hats will be an expert on this in one place and then actually do some kind of lobbying job where their expertise on that thing, like their whatever they said, like mattered and it actually made an impact on because they worked for somebody else, but then presented themselves as a as an objective expert, even though they had a conflict of interest. And that's the thing, is like this conflict of interest is just everywhere these days. It's absolutely everywhere. So that's kind of the the I think strategic reason. So that's to say that like people really thought and still think, and this is still I think it's weakened, but I think it's still there that like, oh, well, if we gave China another 10 years, another 20 years or whatever, then they would become democratic. Then, our, then the norms really would spill over and you'd see them embrace rule of law institutions. And I mean, I honestly, after after 30 years and after looking at like what, you know, she and Putin and, and so on and so forth have have done with their countries, I think at this point, it's time for us to say like enough's enough. We've tried it. You know, it's over. OK, so the cynical explanation is that it's your job after government. <laughs> Right. So corrupt networks really matter because the way that they get policy results is essentially by promising lucrative employment when you're done with government. So it's it's kind of like this whole like, okay, well, you scratch our back now, we scratch yours later. It's a delayed quid pro quo, which while I think American society is very, 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 very critical of bribery in in a very immediate sense, and rightfully so, bribery is of course an extremely corrosive thing. uh, And we've kind of purged that from our society. This idea of having these networks where this authoritarian revolving door, I sometimes call it, where you, you know, you're working on this, you're working on foreign policy, and then you end up going and working for these dictators afterward, you consulting for them or whatever, and then you might even go back into government afterward is a problem. So you end up in actually the same networks as these corrupt individuals. And why would you block them from your system? Why would you create rules where this isn't allowed if you've profited from it? But how do you close that revolving door between government and dictatorial corruption. Yeah. So it's a whole lot of different policy solutions, right? Because it's actually, it's it's hard to do. Like that to me is the biggest weakness of the West. And of course, you know, better lobbying rules, better stuff like that is all important. But I kind of see this as like the, the, uh, the broader fight against kleptocracy in kind of like three spheres. And you have to do them all at once. You can't do one and then do the other. There's no sequential order to this. The first is cleaning up our act at home, which is kind of, I think, the lobbying rules. But then it's also things like beneficial ownership transparency, that is the abolition of anonymous shell companies. Now, Congress has done this and we're waiting for proper rule implementation. Anonymous shell companies are basically these financial entities that you incorporate in different jurisdictions and they enable a lot of money laundering because you basically make one thing, own the other, own the other, own the other, and you block investigations that go all the way back to the actual stolen loot. It's a really big thing that Congress has banned this. Although, 
again, like a lot of this stuff coming quite late in the game. We're clearly in the middle of a paradigm shift. This would have been nice to have 20 years ago, but you know, it's the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. So, so we're doing it now, finally, but it can also include sort of due diligence obligations for these guys, right? So there is enough opprobrium and there is enough norms. There could be better norms, but I think generally speaking, it's not okay to be taking dirty money in American society. Like if we knew people were doing that, that would not be all right, you know? Um, but right now there is no due diligence obligation for lawyers, real estate professionals, for accountants, auditors, investment advisors, the list goes on. If they get money, they don't even need to ask what the source of funds is, right? Which, which when you think about it, is like crazy, right? Somebody's going to come to you with a suitcase of like, what, $10 million or something like that in cash. And you know, like that's the thing is you always know you always know. You always know that this money is bad because it's obvious. It's always obvious and it's taken. So we have to put those due diligence obligations in place. So that's just an example of some of the policies. So that's pillar one. So pillar two is disabling the actual kleptocratic networks, which you can do through sanctions. You can do through indictments. You can do through visa bans. There's all sorts of different ways that you can start to disable these networks. And we've got a bunch of legislation in that space. But I mean, of course, the Magnitsky sanctions have been absolutely the great game changer in this space. The first time that we've put human rights abusers and kleptocrats on our specially designated nationals list, along with terrorists, right? I mean, that's, that really acknowledges the level of problem that we're facing here. So that's the second thing. And then finally, the third thing is working with allies, building the rule of law abroad, stemming the problem at its source, which is really important because a lot of states are either structured as, say, kleptocracies, which you have to fight against. And there are spaces you can do that. There are spaces you can't. So of course, Ukraine is a space where you have a strong civil society. You really want to see the rule of law take root, so on and so forth. You can really help those people. You got to be smarter this way. And then there's other states that have structured themselves as offshore havens or tax havens or secrecy jurisdictions. And you have to work to find ways to dismantle that structure because of course, that's basically selling sovereignty, enabling these kleptocrats to pick and choose their rules all across the world. And when you can pick and choose when the rule of law applies, it's not the rule of law. A lot of the um, solutions that you mentioned are governmental solutions, sanctions, compliance obligations, and so forth. I'm curious if there's things that you would like to see non-governmental actors doing differently to combat corruption. I would say both watchdog agencies and journalists, as well as like the private sector. What are the solutions that could come from those vantage points? It's actually such an important question because in this great second Cold War we're in now, where it's basically open societies versus closed societies, but not in blocks, but rather sort of all over the world, we really need to be thinking about, you know, what makes us better? Because I'm personally extremely convinced that we are better and we are the future of humanity. But what makes us that way? And it's the NGOs, it's the private sector, it's the journals. Everybody's got a government, right? But we have a government that respects individual rights and rule of law and freedom of speech. And enables these kind of societies to bloom. And I'll tell you, the only reason we know any of this is happening at all is because of journalists, and it's because of NGOs, and it's because of investigations have been done outside of government. The government has been, and I say this as a very proud public servant, but the government has been extremely slow to recognize corruption as a national security threat. I mean, we have had bright spots. There was like the permanent subcommittee on investigations in you know the 2010s, and Senator Levin in the early, even the early 2000s did some incredible investigations on this stuff. And of course, Congress often leads in the human rights and anti-corruption front. But really, the biggest stuff has been done by non-government. And they remain far and away in the lead on all of this. Their investigations, 
the way that they've revealed networks, the way that they've exposed kleptocrats. I mean, just more of that, please. And I'll tell you, one of the really exciting things, I think, is the way that we are recognizing just what a boon they are and how we can all work together. So the elements of open societies can work together. And that is private sector can work with with NGOs, with journalists, with government. It's tough because we're all so used to overseeing one another and we need to keep doing that. And that's what keeps us free. But when it comes to fighting authoritarians and fighting close societies, we do need to work together and we need to kind of close ranks and get ready to fight. And one of the ways we've been able to do that very successfully is journalists and NGOs and so on and so forth have done their own investigations and then provided that information to government. It basically is like massive networks that are pushing information into government and they're enabling sanctions. And I'll give you one huge example of this was this group called The Century in town, which again, NGO, uh, it was founded with George Clooney money, actually, uh, uh, one of the great counter-kleptocracy celebrities. But in any case, they did these wonderful investigations on Congo in particular, and the information that they provided ultimately got Dan Gertler, this really horrible, horribly corrupt, misery-inducing Israeli business magnet that basically worked with a bunch of corrupt Congolese politicians to just ravage the Congo, sanctioned on the Magnitsky list. It's really some extraordinary work these guys can do. And, and in fact, the Magnitsky laws include provisions that the government is to be taking information from NGOs and journalists. And I'd love to see more of that. And certainly all the legislation we write that has a piece of this, we put that in everywhere we can to say explicitly the government should be listening to NGOs and listening to journalists. But how do you actually support that work? The money's in taking the dirty money and looking away. How do you actually support these NGOs and journalists? I mean, there are grants for a lot, like OCCRP receives grants from Department of State, the Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, for example. You know, it's really amazing what Magnitsky sanctions can do and who they target, right? And I mean, I, I, I do think that like when enough information is in, when you've really reached that point at which you have enough evidence, the case kind of makes itself and you end up sanctioning these guys. And we, we have sanctioned some very high level people. But I mean, we can always sanction more. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, the, the thing that's going to help us the most by a mile is making this the American national security priority and saying that we are going to sanction oligarchs and we are going to sanction powerful people and we are going to build cases against them, geopolitical consequences, whatever, you know, be damned. And, and I mean, until we can do that, then you're right, there will always be kind of this, this mental block of saying, well, if we're, if we're prioritizing, you know, the bilateral relationship or whatever it is, then we'll never get to where we need to get. Because these people are so close to their governments in a lot of, they are the government, right? I mean, I mean in a lot of ways, these mafia states, these kleptocrats are the government. So sanctioning them becomes unviable for those that think in that kind of good relations uberalis paradigm. But I mean, to me, that's, that's a secondary concern. These, these guys are extremely corrupt. They have dirty money in the US economy that's threatening us. And we need to cut it out. We need to cut out the networks. You mentioned that we're at an inflection point in which now national security communities are more readily acknowledging that corruption is the major threat. What is driving that inflection point? Was there like a, a specific incident or is it just general awareness that has increased over time? And and where do you think that inflection point is going to lead? You know, it starts with the journalists and the NGOs. They have been making the case for a very, very, very long time. The big investigation that always, I think, comes up is the Panama Papers. I mean, that is just an extraordinary investigation. 
that all the world's corrupt elite were all using the same law firm is kind of like a you know a classic kind of villainous thing, right? And they're all working through Mossack Fonseca at some point. I mean, I will be mining the Panama Papers for a decade to come, probably, right? With more and more and more cases. I mean, it's really amazing stuff. So that that started building it. But again, I, I don't think we were where we were. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that over the last few years, transnational corruption and, and kleptocracy kind of hit the front page of the Washington Post in a way that we we never thought it would before, right? So I am. I wrote a report on corruption and corruption fighting in Ukraine uh, in like 2013, 14, right? And it was nice. It was good. It was useful for the people that pay attention to this stuff. Never, never would I have thought we'd see corruption in Ukraine on the front page of the Washington Post, right? So I do think that like the kind of revelations and the, the kind of uh, the kind of investigative journalism that went on and, and very public interest journalism that went on during the Trump administration, I think kind of got it in everyone's heads in a way that it had never been there before that, oh, wow, this is, this is really bad. Like we put ourselves in a situation where these corrupt networks are operating openly in the United States. And while there was a massive burst of, of journalism and some pretty serious belligerence on the part of the administration during that time, this wasn't new. The idea that you had all these corrupt networks operating in DC was very normal. <laughs> it was just kind of like something that sort of happened. And, you know, for some of us, for journalists and for those paying attention, it was viewed as a national security threat. I viewed it as a national security threat, but a lot of people didn't yet. But I think that it is viewed like that now. And then, of course, I think the, the final thing is certainly this administration's prioritization of it, which in part is a reaction to the previous administration. But I, th- but I also think the fact that we have the president out there saying, countering corruption is a core national security interest. I mean, I hope that's real and I hope it's followed by actual meaty policy and everything else. But whatever happens, just having the president say something like that is an inflection point. Having the, the, the highest office in the land come out and say, this is now a core national security interest is huge. It's huge. You wrote a report in Foreign Policy about how corruption was impacting small and mid-sized towns in the U.S., Can you tell us more about how this isn't just a Washington or a Ukraine issue, but it's a Cleveland issue? That's a great question. And before I jump into that, I also I want to mention one more thing, because I'd be remiss if I forgot it. But there's also now a caucus against foreign corruption and kleptocracy in Congress. So, I mean, things have changed, I I think, for those for those reasons. So, so yes, that's a a great question, Grant. And I'd focus so far on the ways that corrupt networks are influencing policy. That, to me, is maybe priority one, right? Is like, is democratic decision-making being undermined by corruption? Because if it is, that's a huge, huge, huge problem. <laughs> a very close priority to that is how kleptocracy is destroying the lives of Americans in a very real way. What happened in Cleveland is an excellent demonstration of that. We did this great briefing with this former FBI agent, Karen Greenaway, who's excellent and really knows these issues. But I think she put it best in that dirty money is like a dry stream bed, essentially. You'll, you'll have it come in all at once, and then your person will sort of fall out of power or whatever, and everything will go to crap again. And I think that that's absolutely what we saw in the Cleveland case, where you all of a sudden had a ton of money coming in from Kolomoisky, and, 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 which he'd allegedly stolen from the bank he owned, Privat Bank. And he bought up huge amounts of property downtown Cleveland. He bought up a huge commercial district. He bought up steel mills around the place and stuff like that. And then he let it all go to crap. And it turned out that you, get, you, you ended up with people reliant upon his money that got hurt. You know, they lost their jobs. They got horrible work injuries, scalding, burns, buildings exploded. We just saw recently one of these, one of these steel mills he owned, like, like 
apparently uh, has been a victim of arson, <laughs> you know, like probably looking for some nice insurance money here, you know, um, so it's, 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 it's a really extraordinary circumstance of just how this money can come in, essentially dilapidate your town town, uh, end up with a lot of people out of work, end up with a lot of people hurt because they've been victims of kleptocracy. And it's, it's also this extraordinary example of how kleptocracy goes from Ukraine to America, right? So Kolomoisky, Igor Kolomoisky, this you know early uh, Ukrainian oligarch, was there at privatization and all that kind of stuff. He ends up hurting the Ukrainian people by robbing them blind, moving this money, essentially getting all of these various enablers in the movement phase, whether it's through Switzerland or London or wherever, both probably, all of them become reliant upon his money. And then he gets it into an American downtown where a bunch of American workers become reliant upon his money. And all of these people now are hurt. We're talking about thousands, all the way from, you know, those that were working in the factories to those, you know, our, our various professionals who have made themselves reliant upon dirty money. So it is, it is like a really great, I think, demonstration of how kleptocracy corrodes everything it touches. And the other thing I'll say to this is we just, we just don't know how many downtowns are like this. The only reason we know about this with Cleveland is because Kolomoisky fell out of favor, which is another reason everything sort of went to crap. But he, but he sort of, he fell out of favor in Ukraine for a while. Of course, now nobody knows what's happening because he's supposed to be in favor with Zelensky, but is he really, whatever. But he fell out of favor and Privatbank was nationalized and they gave all the records to DOJ. So DOJ has got all these asset forfeiture actions now against Kolomoisky stuff in Cleveland. But that's the only reason we know. I mean, I'm sure there were some incredible investigators, but this wasn't the product of like some really great new technology or incredible investigation method. You know, we got lucky and the documents came to us because, you know, he fell out of favor. So, I mean, how many American downtowns are owned by kleptocrats? We just won't know because it's all it's all opaque. It's not transparent. We can't know. It's all hidden behind chains of shell companies. Who knows? This week, obviously, all eyes are on Afghanistan. You tweeted earlier this week that Corruption is the root cause of the failure in Afghanistan. You know, I think most people's perspective would be that Afghanistan was a military failure, not a corruption issue. So can you tell us what you what you meant by that? I really want to recommend the reports of the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Another one of these things that was like looking at this problem had basically been shouting from the rooftops for a decade now that corruption was undermining our operations in Afghanistan. And had testified to that and everything else, but we just we couldn't change. Part of the problem is, you know, when you have a particular paradigm, this is why this is why it's so important that the paradigm is shifting right now. Because it's not like it's not like people weren't saying this at various points in history. Because they were. Seagar was. So I mean, mad, mad, mad respect to John Sapko, who was the Seagar. And I, you know, I, he's I've met the man and he's presented to uh staffers and stuff like that. And he's I mean, <laughs> we all knew this. But we made a calculation in this case, right? And see, this happens in the engagement philosophy. This happens in when you prioritize security, in air quotes, over values, right? And this happens when you prioritize the bilateral relationship or geopolitics, in air quotes, around values and anti-corruption and human rights, is you end up knowing that something's happening, but you say, well, it's expedient, it's useful, you know, we, we, you know how else are you going to get these warlords to do what you want? How else are you going to get the government to do what you want? So you end up almost relying on corruption. This was a weird case. We see this 
in the engagement philosophy too, it's like, it's this whole thing that like, well, you know, we're going to engage with China. We're going to provide them business. We're going to provide them opportunities. We're going to engage with Russia. We're going to provide them opportunities, yada, 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 uh, in the hope that we'll get what we want. And then we don't get what we want. And it's like, you know, like, oh, how, oh, how did this happen? Well, of course it happened. You know, I mean, in the Afghanistan case, it's very clear cut because we were bringing in massive amounts of aid, no strings attached, providing equipment and money and all sorts of stuff to the, a very, very, very corrupt government. You know, I mean, they, they'd steal this money. They'd find clever ways of embezzling it. They'd sell weapons. And I mean, it, that was that whole thing of like, why, how, is, how did the Taliban get a, get a hold of all this American uh, arms? Like, well, that's, you know, there you go. I mean, there, there was also like, okay, we trained 300,000 soldiers. Well, I mean, at various times, there's like, well, there are all these ghost soldiers. <laughs> On the record, there's like 200,000, the Seagar estimated. They were, they were saying like, there are 200,000 soldiers that don't exist in Afghanistan that are drawing salaries and that money is going to the pockets of corrupt officials. We didn't want to challenge corruption in Afghanistan and we don't want to challenge corruption now to some extent. And we didn't want to challenge corruption historically because challenging corruption is hard. It's really, really hard. Alexei Navalny writing from his prison cell, a man who has challenged corruption his entire life, really, you know, that's what he made his his foundation in Russia, which now banned the Anti-Corruption Foundation, wrote today uh, that corruption is behind all the world's biggest problems. Challenging corruption is hard. Putting corruption first is hard because it's uncomfortable. I mean, how do you meet with Putin and say, let's talk about corruption? Because at that point, you're saying, let's talk about the fact that, you, that you're the problem. You rule Russia through corruption. How do you go to the, this corrupt Afghan government and be like, you can't be corrupt? You know, I mean, the, we, we basically said patronage is going to be okay because patronage is the way that we're going to work Afghanistan. And of course, that blew up in our face. Of course, we needed to do it based on values. Of course, we needed to find ways to do this in a way that wasn't based on corruption. But we didn't. We didn't because it's always easier not to talk about corruption because corruption is really, really, really hard to address. So in the case of something like Afghanistan, I mean, I'm curious what the alternative is. Is it just having a stronger compliance checks and more transparency and accountability in, in where funds are going? I mean, it seems to me like in every situation in which you have a lot of aid flowing in, especially to a conflict zone, the faucet is always leaky. Has anybody found a way to address this? Yeah. And I mean, the CIGAR also recommended sanctions for corruption. It's two things. It's what you say. It's accountability. It's investigations. It's knowing where aid is going. It's putting a lot of safeguards on it and that sort of thing, like like really proper accounting. I mean, Afghanistan was really bad. Our security assistance is a mess. And, that, and that's also in part because after 9-11, everything was switched. Security assistance in particular used to be run by the Department of State. This is a bigger, longer term issue, but just the way that's the Department of State has lost all of its various powers over time. They've gone to different agencies and stuff like that. But the Department of State used to run security systems that went to DOD. And of course, DOD is a very different culture. DOD is not concerned about, you know, that immediate, okay, what, what is this corruption going to do down the line? They, 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 they are concerned about immediate, like, how can we get this mission objective done? And if the mission objective gets done, when you hand the person a bag of cash, it's done. Checkbox, you know, like moving on, you know, next thing. So there were practically no corruption safeguards in this case. But of course, it's not just corruption safeguards. It's not just that. And we should have that for all aid, really. You know, any, any at-risk aid should be subject to corruption safeguards, which we don't have, uh, especially in security assistance. I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but like our security assistance going to like various dictatorships around the world, like propping up kleptocracies practically, like, I mean, in Egypt or wherever. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy to me. American security assistance is like a, a really 
big long-term problem and something we need to take a hard, hard look at because that's of all of our policies, that's the place where we are most saying values don't matter. We are we are here totally for short-term expedient, whatever geopolitical gains. The other thing, of course, the other side of that is actually being able to say, okay, enough's enough. We're going to sanction this person. We're going to we're going to kick you out of government. We're going to and 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 understanding that that comes with risks too. But we're on. We just seem so unwilling to take these risks. But the bigger risk is allowing corruption to to flourish. It's allowing corruption to grow. So I mean, sometimes you have to say, okay, we're going to sanction this oligarch. In, in the Afghanistan case, sometimes we had to, we're going to sanction the senior official. We're kicking him out to the road, you know. And does that lose us some sort of network? Does that mean we have to rebuild something? Is that is that a problem for the mission? Yeah, probably. But in the long term, it gets it done because the bigger problem for the mission is engendering further corruption. I'm on board. I think us working with dictators is is a bad move long term. But if we sanction all these people in friendly states, will they take money from China? Will they start taking money from Russia? Are we just really solidifying this open world, closed world dynamic? I mean, I think that we often don't understand or appreciate our own power and role in the world. I think a lot of people look at America and they're like, well, it's, it's an empire, imperial. You know, it's like, it's funny because from the outside, you hear that. And yet, I've, every time I talk with Americans, especially Americans like you guys in foreign policy, it's always this really, really deep humility of like, oh, no, like if, you know, if we don't give these bad guys what they want, you know, like the other bad guys will come and get them. You know, it's like, no. America's indispensable. I mean, I mean, look, these transactions that are done even in the Belt and Road are done in U.S. dollars. The American financial system underpins the globe. Like, I mean, there is no walking away from America. I mean, nine times out of 10, even if you're taking Chinese bribes, you're going to hide them in the West. Even the Chinese cronies, the cronies of Xi and those that, you know, run ministries or wherever or in the PLA, like they steal money. And where do they put it? Not in China. They put it in America. They put it in Europe. Like like anybody that steals money, all these kleptocrats want to live in the West. They understand that, first of all, where's Carrie Lam's son going to school? Stanford. Where did Xi Jinping's son go? Harvard. You know, like, so, I mean, it's just like, there is no alternative. No matter what you want, no matter what you do, you need to get that money to the West because you don't want it to be stolen by the next big, bigger fish. The, the great irony of modern kleptocracy is that it relies fully and totally on access to the West. The only reason you can keep these systems of theft going and you never have to worry about rule of law domestically is because you're basically outsourcing your rule of law. You're saying, okay, we stole here, so we're going to move this money to the West where it's protected and where we can enjoy a nice house on the Riviera and send all our kids to boarding schools and universities and whatever else, and we can have all the freedoms we deny our own people. Yes, I, I absolutely am for sanctioning all corrupt actors, putting values first and trusting that because, because I mean, it's more than trust me. It's just a fact-based, you know, the journalists have revealed this, everything. These guys need us a lot more than we need them. And we are holding all the cards in all these relationships. And it's about time we played some of them because we have not played any over the last 30 years. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is maybe America is too ambitious in our military first approach and not really understanding that financially and maybe rule of law wise, we're actually the indispensable actor rather than militarily with an indispensable actor. Ding, ding, ding. Couldn't have said it better myself, Grant. I endorse that statement. I'll tweet it. 
One of the areas of corruption that really uh, hits home with me is its impact on the beautiful game. FIFA officials have been arrested by the FBI for money laundering. It's widely suspected that Qatar won the right to host a World Cup because of bribery. My beloved Chelsea is owned by a Russian oligarch. What can we do to actually make international sports the pillar of human rights rather than the cesspool of corruption? Grant, I, I, I love that you asked this question because I so rarely get to talk about this stuff, even though I spend a lot of time working on it. For whatever reason, it's just it's really in it. It's a really an American, uh, uniquely American thing that we don't pay attention to international sport all that often. We have our own leagues. We have our own stuff going on. But like the International Olympic Committee, the World Anti-Doping Agency, FIFA, like these things are so corrupt, <laughs> like, 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 like so deeply problematic and operate basically as mafias around the world. I mean, we are talking about bribes and envelopes. We are talking about money to cover up doping in federations. We're talking about trips to Russia to cover up doping. We're talking about whatever. It is completely out of control. So yeah, no, I've, I've looked very deeply into this. And in fact, we have passed a law. So we, this is what, what, what my sort of my first big project was criminalizing doping in international competitions. That bill, the Rachankov Anti-Doping Act, did that with extraterritorial jurisdiction. So the way we like to see that is as the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act of sport. And of course, the FCPA is to me the, the gem in the crown of American, uh, I guess we wouldn't wear a crown, uh, the, the symbol in the liberty cap of, 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 of uh, you know, American anti-corruption efforts around the world that makes it illegal for a US corporation to pay a bribe abroad. So this actually makes it, if any competition is touching the US economy, because again, it's all about the economy, it's all about the financial system, touching the US economy, then if any non-athletes, by the way, but any criminal enterprise, kleptocratic coaches, whatever, engage in a doping conspiracy, you are now liable under U.S. law. So that was one big thing we were able to do. And now we're hopefully going to see a big case come out. But I mean, in the long term, what you do about this, you got to see more criminal investigations of this. You've got to generate accountability. I mean, one of the biggest problems with the IOC and FIFA generally is that they basically operate under this, which is insane, by the way, this quote unquote, autonomy of sport framework, where they actually have their own court called the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which they also own. You know, they influence. There's huge conflicts of interest in the whole thing. The people at the top of of CAS, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, the people at the top of the World Anti-Doping Agency, so on and so forth, are all members of the IOC. So it's like, like, what the heck? You know, like, I I don't know, man. It'd be like, it'd be like, you know, the people that are making the decisions have have a financial stake in the outcome of the decisions they make. I mean, it's, it's completely out of control. So, I mean, what you really need to do at the end of the day is either make the IOC like an intergovernmental style organization that runs sports so you can actually get a democratic and human rights respecting or get to a point where basically all of this sports stuff is tried in normal courts, like actual courts uh, in rule of law states, as opposed to like in this court of arbitration for sport, you know, which is like controlled by them. So there needs to be like, I, I actually saw it put best in a recent New York Times article that the IOC functions as like a a transnational corporation, except like it has no accountability. <laughs> Even corporations with accountability can get a little off track sometimes. But like, imagine if every dispute against Microsoft had to be solved in the Microsoft court. That's crazy. It's a crazy, crazy system. So we're going to do more on it. We, I think that the United States is actually really off the sidelines now in this. I think that you know the FBI now has this sport and gambling integrity initiative, and they they are going to enforce. They've said they're going to enforce the Rachankov Act very aggressively. They They've got a lot of other stuff. I mean, they already have a lot of tools here. They made that case, you know, again, 2015 against FIFA. 
there was the RICO, the racketeering and money laundering case, very, very powerful. They got like 60 plus uh, guilty pleas and so on. So, but that, but you know, you need to do a lot of those cases and you need to keep revealing it and exposing it and fighting it. But at the end of the day, like these organizations will never internally reform because they, they can't. You need independent accountability structures that actually have independence. That's the only way. I mean, it's like, it's so funny because it's like government one-on-one, right? I mean, you need to build checks and balances. And that and that's and that's how you actually will eventually have accountability in these organizations. But until then, like I'm not hopeful that we're gonna see like an end to this kind of crazy like veneration and lionization of autocracy and kleptocracy and the corruptions, the corrupt acts that go on within within these organizations. Before we wrap up, Paul, there's actually one question that I that I wanted to ask you earlier. Um, how did you become interested originally in Corruption. Like, was there a moment where you were like, yes, this is the topic that I want to devote my life to? Like, I'm curious how you how you got here. So I, I am definitely one of those who found their cause, you know, like, like, I always loved politics. And I always knew I was gonna be in politics. And I always kind of like that that was always coming down the line. And I, I liked party politics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then I went abroad, when I was like 17, to, to Germany, I've lived in Germany for a few years. And I kind of develop some foreign policy sort of experience. I mean, being over there, it made me aware of just how central and important the United States is to just like so, so, so much <laughs> in the world. And I was like, oh, I want to do foreign policy. And I, I ended up at the Helsinki Commission and I was an intern there years and years and years and years ago. And I've actually held probably every single job you can hold at the Helsinki Commission. I've been the staff associate. I've been the administrative director, I like an acting comms director for a moment, I, you know, like everything except chief of staff. But our econ person left and I had a econ mastery and I was like, well, I really want to do policy. That's why I've been doing all this stuff. And then I got the position, which is excellent. But the, the portfolio is huge and it still is huge. It's like, it's, it's the economics and environment. That's everything, you know? Um, so it was really like, like, okay, so what do you, you got to focus? That's always what is it. So what are you going to focus on? And it was actually the, the conversations I had with the kleptocracy initiative at the time. Those are the original conversations back in the day, the, the Hudson Institute's kleptocracy initiative, Nate Sibley, one of my very, very, very good friends, still very, very, very close friends that turned me on to, hey, you got to look at this. You know, you got to look at this corruption issue. And of course, Members in the United States has long fought corruption. Members like to be against corruption. So it was a good political issue too. Um, and I started looking into it and I don't know, it was like love at first sight, like policy love. I don't know. I don't know like how you would, but it was like, like, oh my God, this is it. <laughs> like, like, like this is, this is what's behind it all. It was, I don't, I don't know. Like it, it's, it was really amazing. And, and, you know, it's just been like the more I work on this, the more, and I've been working a while now, the more I am convinced that this is the struggle of our generation, of the next few decades even, and, and that it's behind so many of the other struggles, including climate change, including the fight against authoritarianism, including wealth inequality. I mean, I mean, just all these other issues that I do feel passionately about as well are basically exacerbated and driven by this underlying corruption that has accompanied the last 30 years, that has accompanied the evolution of globalization in this kind of authoritarian, I'm sad to say, kleptocratic direction. Brian Whitmore, who I also love dearly, he's this former RFRL journalist that's now a, a think tanker. Uh, he once wrote, corruption is the new communism. And, you know, there's, of course, problems with a statement like that. I mean, it's not ideological. It's not, but, 
but but insofar as it is the driving force of our adversaries and as the underpinning phenomenon that is that is undermining rule of law and democracy and human rights around the world, I think it's absolutely true. And I think we need to all stand against it. So on that note, let's go to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following. So I'll do my very serious one first. This week, I'm following the current situation in Ethiopia. The civil war between the central government and the Tigrayan defense forces is reaching a boiling point. The prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, is calling on civilians to join the fight. There's been spillover into Sudan and Eritrea. In addition to this, members of the Ethiopian military have been tried and convicted for using rape and other forms of sexual violence as a weapon of war. Access for aid groups has been basically cut off despite promises from the government. Abiy Ahmed recently rebuffed USAID Administrator Samantha Power when she visited the country to discuss these issues. This should be a five-alarm fire for the Biden administration, but it's not getting the attention it merits. We were told that the Biden administration foreign policy team would be putting human rights first, but in Ethiopia and Afghanistan, I'm just not seeing it. Zoe, what are you following this week? I'm going to talk about something that's not foreign policy related this week. Like many people, I've been following the Free Britney movement and the court battle over her conservatorship. For those who are not following, uh, Britney Spears has been part of an arrangement called the conservatorship since 2008, which has significantly curtailed her control over her finances and assets and activities. And uh, in in recent sort of years and months, it's become the subject of both a very big legal battle and also kind of a cultural movement. Uh, and it was back in the news this week because Britney's father just agreed to step aside uh, in his role in overseeing the conservatorship, which allegedly Britney has been advocating for for a long time. You know, I I find this whole story to be so fascinating because, you know, it presents some some very serious legal questions about the circumstances in which it makes sense to to restrict somebody's legal rights. And then on a deeper level, I think it also raises questions more generally about gender and control and who we think needs to be sort of rescued from themselves, who we think gets to determine what's, quote unquote, in the best interest of others. You know, this story is definitely not over. And um, you can be sure that I will be following along. Paul, what are you watching this week? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess we're going down the ladder of seriousness here, so I'll, I'll be like completely unserious. I have a lot of opinions on uh, superheroes. It, it won't it won't surprise surprise many. I, I I really enjoy my my comic books every now and then, but I am a big critic of the Marvel films. I do not like them, and with Martin Scorsese on this one, that they're just big roller coaster rides. But I recently saw a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in a long time but it's August and you do August things in August recess, like going and seeing the friends you haven't seen in a long time. So I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a long time and he sat me down and he had me watch the four hour Zack Snyder cut of Justice League. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and I, I actually really liked it, surprisingly. I didn't expect to like it because the DC films have also kind of like been a mess, even if they're a little bit more inspired than the Marvel films, because again, Disney is taking everything we love and ruining it. But 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 anyway, uh, yeah. So I, I've I've been inspired to go back and watch all the all the original DC animated cartoons in the evenings uh, that I'd watch like Saturday morning as a kid. And I started watching the DC animated Justice League again, and it is mwah, absolutely excellent. I recommend it to everybody. It's wonderful. The quips are wonderful. 
you can totally watch as an adult, at least as a, as a millennial adult, and really enjoy it. So that's my pop culture thing. <laughs> with that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver. You can follow Zoe at Z Weinberg. And you can follow Paul at AP Masaro 3. This week's episode is brought to you by Igor Kolomoisky. Corruption you can count on. <laughs> Look at this guy. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. 